Well, St. Paul, in chapter 1 of his first letter to the Thessalonians, has already referred to the persecution that the Thessalonian believers have suffered since becoming believers. St. Paul will refer to it again later in the chapter from which our reading is taken. He will tell them that they are not alone and that the believers in Judea are also suffering, uh, suffering severe persecution from those they live among. St. Paul begins our reading this morning by telling the Thessalonians of his and his team's suffering and the opposition that they had faced at Philippi just before going to Thessalonica. Before that, St. Paul had experienced real opposition when he had gone to Galatia with Barnabas, opposition that saw St. Paul being stoned and left for dead. Suffering and persecution were to become the norm in the early church. St. Paul tells believers in his letters to expect it, and Jesus had given similar warnings. We are, I think, aware that believers in the early church faced opposition, but we tend to lump it all together and treat it as the same. In fact, it came from different sources for different reasons. The early church experienced opposition from the Jews, from Jesus' own people. They experienced it from the pagans. The pagans disliked the exclusivity, as we saw last week, of the gospel message, the demand that they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. But opposition also came from within the church, from people that St. Paul refers to as false brethren. So all in all, the early church found themselves having to confront and cope with real opposition. When St. Paul talks in our reading then of having had courage in God, he's not exaggerating. The church faced opposition on all sides. And faced with such opposition, we might have expected St. Paul and his associates to be eager to make as many converts as they possibly could. And we might have expected them to tailor their message accordingly. But St. Paul in our reading this morning is anxious to stress the desire of St. Paul, St. Silvanus and Timothy to please God rather than to please any human audience. St. Paul refuses to be deterred and refuses to try to please those that he's preaching to. St. Paul didn't say what he thought his audience wanted to hear. He didn't say what might be to his and his co-workers' benefit, nor did they seek praise or popularity. Now, this attitude might have made them seem somewhat hard, cold, and detached. People who refuse to compromise can come across like this. But this wasn't the case with St. Paul and his co-workers. They were so committed to the Thessalonians that they were like a nursing mother, tenderly taking care of her children. St. Paul and his co-workers were committed to God and to the Thessalonians, 
and it was this dual commitment that was on display when St. Paul went to Thessalonica. Three things then from this for us today. Three key words, if you like. Opposition, orientation, and operation. Firstly, opposition. If we preach faithfully, we're going to meet opposition. We shouldn't seek it or provoke it. In fact, St. Paul says that as much as lies within us, we are to be, live at peace with everyone. And that's not easy, because it means compromising our own feelings and our own desires. But if we are to be faithful to the gospel, we, like St. Paul, will not be able to compromise our message. Jesus warned his disciples that in the world they would have trouble, and if they hated him, they would hate them. As those societies which have traditionally been sympathetic to the Christian faith turn from it, they will increasingly turn against it. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. There are two reactions in the church to this. Firstly, to try and hold on to the past. And then secondly, to embrace the changes that we see taking place in society in the hope of keeping our place in it. I think it's this second which is gaining the most pace in the church. We in the church are facing demands to change traditional doctrine and to embrace a progressive agenda, not least when it comes to sexual ethics. We need in the church to wake up to the fact that opposition is coming. We've seen some of the ways that that opposition might come to us in the new atheism, so-called, of a few years ago. It's only going to get worse. And I have to say that most leaders in the church are in complete denial about this. They hope that by holding on to the past or by becoming more like the world, we will win people back. It isn't going to happen. And we in the church need to be prepared for the opposition that we are going to face. Opposition. Secondly, orientation. Opposition is not all bad. It shouldn't be sought, but as Samuel Johnson says, hanging concentrates the mind. The fact that we are going to face, are facing opposition, should force us to face up to what it is that matters to us. It should force us to decide just what our message actually is. We need to accept that the past is past. There is no going back. The church is not going to have the place, the role, or the influence that it once had. And it is not going to regain that influence by seeking to be relevant. As a church, like St. Paul, we are not called to be either popular or relevant. We are called to have courage. Courage like 
two saints I've mentioned in the past, Saints Perpetua and Felicity, two young mothers who went to their death rather than compromise their faith in the gospel. We are to be like them. We are to be true to the message of the gospel. But part of our problem is that we are too concerned with our image, with how we are seen, with how people respond. St. Paul knew that the audience he had to please wasn't the people he was preaching to, but God. It was what God thought that mattered to him. People's response he could leave to God. The gospel is a message that we have been entrusted with to pass on to people. Now, if someone asks you to take a message, what matters is that you get the message right. If someone is sent to tell a whole group of people who live in one particular street that the road is going to be closed, or that their apartment block needs to be evacuated, the important thing for the messenger is to make sure the message is accurate and correct. Whether people respond to that message or not isn't the messenger's main concern. The messenger might hope that they respond to the message, but it's getting the message right. If you were sent with a message like this, you wouldn't think, well, I better change the message so the people in the building aren't offended by it or the inhabitants in the road aren't inconvenienced too much. You would want to make sure that the message was actually the message you'd been given. God has given us a message and we change it at our peril and we fail to take it seriously at our peril. Of course we hope people will listen. Of course we will do all that we can to see that they do. But ultimately our concern is to preach the gospel faithfully, to pass on the message of the gospel. So thirdly, op opposition, orientation, and operation. How we deliver our message is important. Some years ago, Marshall McLuhan, I don't know if anyone remembers him, a Canadian philosopher, a Canadian philosopher famously said, the medium is the message. In other words, how we deliver the message can't be separated from the message itself. And St. Paul makes a similar point in our reading this morning. God is the one that we are to be orientated to. God is the one that we are to please as we deliver his message. And as we deliver God's message, St. Paul writes, God will test our hearts. He will test our hearts to make sure our motives are right as we deliver his message. St. Paul stresses that he and his co-workers were anxious to ensure that in delivering the message of the gospel, they never used flattery, they weren't greedy, nor did they seek praise, either from the Thessalonians or from anyone else. Three things, greed, flattery, and praise. 
Now, of course, greed, we're not in it uh, for the money, although sadly, we see examples of evangelists on television who clearly are. But greed can take many forms. Greed, for example, of wanting to get on and get ahead. Clergy, for example, are often encouraged to see their ministry as about career advancement. We talk about positions in the church and whether they're senior or not, and where people are in the hierarchy. St. Paul would be horrified with such talk. He would see it as being greed, an example of greed. Now, you may say to me this morning, Ross, that's just sour grapes because you didn't get very high in the hierarchy. Well, fair enough. But if you don't want to listen to me, listen to His Holiness Pope Francis, who said exactly the same thing just this past week. We are to get our motives right. We shouldn't seek to be flattered. We shouldn't seek advancement through the gospel, nor should we seek praise. We all like to be popular. It's always nice when people praise us, and we should praise people for doing something good and right, but we shouldn't do something good or right in order to get the praise. Our desire for a response, to do well for ourselves, to be popular, can easily lead us to distort our message, to make ourselves the focus of the message. St. Paul reminds the Thessalonians in closing our reading this morning that when it comes to ourselves, we are not to worry about what we can get out of the gospel, we're to worry about how much we can give for the gospel. St. Paul writes, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak, not to please people, but to please God, who tests our hearts. May we hear at Christchurch, pass the test.